<sighs> Life's hard. Let's talk about it over some tea. Welcome to Tea and Transitions, where we serve up stories on the dynamic lives of women of color as they navigate through life's cold, lukewarm, and steamy moments. I'm Vina Vo, a planner, facilitator, and today your personal tea snob. And I'm Odelia, a writer and educator trying to not spill too much tea. So grab your favorite cup or mug and let's get right into some TNT. Hi, Vina. I'm really excited to try this tea that you made me and you came all the way to Oakland to drop it off for me. You know, I'm just a really, really good person. <laughs> you are, you are. Well, I'm so excited that we are um, talking about this tea today. I thought it was apt to talk about this one because technically it's not really a tea. It's a tisane or an herbal blend. Um, to be actually considered a tea, then it needs to become, it needs to come from the Camellia sinensis. Mm, and, so champagne um, of it. <laughs> yeah, I know it's it's these designations. Um, but anyways, this one is an herbal blend of just some herbs that I put together, and yeah, super excited about it. It's called Mekong Mist. Um, I named it after where I am originally from, or where actually where my family's from. I was made in the Mekong, but I was born in the U.S. Um, so the Mekong is this region in Southeast Asia, specifically. I'm from the Vietnamese or the Vietnam part of it. It's like a you know, people know it as the Mekong Delta or the Mekong River. And it's a combination of lemongrass, ginger, and mint, all very just common ingredients that you would find in Vietnam, in Vietnamese cuisine. Um, I put this together because I wanted um, a tea that was kind of like a good digestive, something that I could drink all the time, um, something that would give me a little bit of energy when I needed a little, a little perk. So I would love to hear what you think of it. Yeah. Were you already thinking about this tea last year when you were in the Mekong? Uh, no, not really. I was thinking, I well, one of my hobbies that I picked up during quarantine is tea blending. I've always really been into tea as a consumer, um, but I never thought about making my own blends. And I just, I didn't really like some of the blends that were out there. And so I wanted to just pick the ingredients that I really liked um, and, and make it myself. So I love that. I think our relationship with something that we love consuming changes when we start to be the people producing it. And that's one of the things I enjoyed about starting to bake bread because I've always enjoyed bread, but it really changed my relationship with eating it when I could like play around with the different flavors. Yeah. And your bread looks amazing. You've been doing a really amazing job with it. Um, Please tell I, everyone so that I can finally become the Instagram model that I'd like to be. Well, you know, you haven't given me any yet. So I can't say how good it tastes. So maybe that should be on your to-do list. Maybe you should come drop off some bread for me in exchange for tea and we could do a barter, you know, <laughs> bartering Ooh. system. Wow. <laughs> the stakes are high to get your endorsement. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I also want to say that like I, when in blending, I don't blend tea, like actual tea. I only blend herbal blends just because I believe that if the tea is really good, I just don't want to, I don't want to mix it with anything. Like I used to drink jasmine tea, but I don't really like that anymore because I guess I want my tea to taste like the leaves that it was like, come that it came from. So just want to be specific, especially for the, 
the tea snobs out there. I'm not blending, you know, green tea, black tea, or any of that kind of stuff. These are all just herbal blends, which I personally like. Um, anyways, so anyways, I want to hear your thoughts. What do you think? What are the notes that you're tasting? Well, I'm smelling it right now, and I love all just the lemongrass smell. It's so calming to me. Like it's up there with eucalyptus and lavender for me. There's just certain things that I need to smell to stay calm. So already I feel like I have a good relationship with this tea from the smells that are coming off of it. Now let me taste it. Okay. I feel like this is a very like light tea to me. I like, um, also thinking about the name, like mist in it, it does feel like it kind of bounced off of my tongue and yeah, it's very different. It's like, yeah, it just kind of stays uh, like a very light touch to me. Is that like on purpose? Yeah. I wanted something that was light and refreshing and, you know, the mint kind of helps with that like freshness and lingering, um, feeling. And then, um, the lemongrass and the ginger kind of is like the more of the flavor punch, but I wanted the the feeling and the tingle from the mint. Yeah. And I love the ginger that's coming through for me. Uh, I feel like it's like the perfect amount of ginger where I can feel like that little like pow that you get with ginger, but not like, wow, I'm drinking ginger tea. Yeah. And the, the ginger that I use is pretty potent. So then I just, I really had to be careful about how much I blended. Um, so yeah. You caught, you caught all the notes. <laughs> it actually, in a way, like after you taste it for a while, like when it's the first steep, it kind of tastes like Ricola, you know, the the cough drop. <laughs> yes. I don't know if that's a good thing for people or not, but I, I love Ricola growing up. And so that's kind of what it tasted to me like when I started drinking it. I also love Ricola. So I'm just really happy to hear someone else say that. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good one. Of all the cough drops, that's a good one. But anyways, thanks. Thanks for being my tester. This is something very new for me. So excited that, you know, um, you got a chance to taste it. And well, thank you for not. Yeah. And thank you for not giving up on me. I know for years you've been telling me that I need to get a teapot. I need to be, you know, moving towards that and finally did. I love my little lavender and yellow uh, teapot. And it's just been so great waking up and making my tea. And it's really just puts me in a different mood to tackle my day. Yep. I'm, I'm glad, you know, you finally got on. I mean, we have a show called Tea in Transition, so you don't have a teapot, then. <laughs> no, we can drink tea. With... We can drink tea without That's <laughs> true. Teapot. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Cool. Well, I am really excited about today's episode uh, talking about food and women of color and our relationships with food. During, you know, sheltering in place in the pandemic, I've had a lot more time to cook. I've become a breakfast person again. I was always a breakfast person growing up with my mom. And then, you know, in college, I was woke up for breakfast. But somewhere along the way, I was like, oh, I don't have time for breakfast. I need to catch the Caltrain or I need to get on this bus. And so starting my day with that relationship with food and filling my stomach with goodness for breakfast has been amazing. And just trying out all these different recipes, especially going back to the recipes that I love growing up that my mom was cooking, these different West Indian dishes and showing her photos of them and asking for her advice. It's also been like another point of just connection for my mother and I during the pandemic. That sounds amazing. I'm glad, you know, you're finding ways to really connect with your family during this time um, around food and glad you're eating breakfast. It's a very important meal. I don't know why people skip breakfast. How do you function without fuel for your body for the day? So glad you're picking up these habits. Thank you. You know, I'm trying, I'm trying out here. (laughs) 
Yeah, I'm really excited to hear the stories from today as well. I think it's so important for women of color to talk about food um, just because I feel like food is so dominated by white people and white culture and then white male culture, especially. And I started getting really passionate about this when I just started seeing so many white people featured talking about specifically Vietnamese food or Asian food. And it'd be one thing, you know, if they had studied there, they'd worked there, they lived there, and they were showing appreciation for the food. But in some cases, um, it was just incredible disrespect. Like I remember maybe about four or five years ago, and this I'll never forgive this man. Um, he was the chef in Philadelphia, and he was featured in Bon Appetit as like the PSA on eating pho. And pho is like the traditional Vietnamese dish. And here was this like white chef who was like giving a PSA on how to eat it. And not it's like, okay, fine. You know, he was giving a PSA that was like, fine, sure. But he was being really patronizing and arrogant about it. And they had blamed it on editing afterwards. But I'm like, I don't know. But anyways, it wasn't even like accurate. And it was just really frustrating to see that happen in a magazine that I then really did respect because it was one of the big food magazines. Um, to see that like they had to get this man to be to be this authority on pho when we have so many amazing Vietnamese chefs, like one of um, someone who I consider to be like the godmother of um, Vietnamese American cuisine is Andrea Nguyen. And like they could have easily reached out to her and contacted her and asked, you know, to do something. But no, they reached out to this this person instead. So I just I think it's so important um, for women of color to be able to talk about food because food is a reflection of culture. We need to be able to tell our own stories that reflect our heritage, reflect our culture and give it like that due respect that it deserves. Yeah, absolutely. And the frustrating part is they will strip away the culture from the food and then hike the price up to double or triple. You know, and I want us to also be able to appreciate the work that, you know, women of color are putting into food and also know that, you know, if they want to price it that way, then that's fine. You know, like they're bringing all of that work and that that heritage and we should be able to pay that amount when it's coming from women of uh, color and not just from other people. And I was thinking I joined the New York Times cooking community last summer just as a place to get some more recipes and thought it'd just be interesting to try something new and so many posts were about like don't bring your politics here just post the recipe we're just doing recipes and people time and time again kept telling them food is political like there is politics in food like how different foods come about like who's able to cook things claim things and I don't ever want to disconnect food from the hands that have grown it, who it has helped survive. And I, I think about like two years ago when I was in Korea and in Seoul and I went to the kimchi museum and I didn't know that kimchi along with a few other foods were UNESCO like designated world foods and just learning about kimchi and its history in Korea just gave me even more of a reverence for a food I already enjoyed. And that's the thing that makes food for me. I want to know the story behind it and not just people who want to stick to a specific recipe, ridicule other people, and then just like mm -hmm. serve it to you. Like, you know, it's not just in the presentation. It's about the the presence of the people and their lives in the dishes. Yeah, definitely. They're, and that's, I think that's the part that is really frustrating sometimes and when people are like, food isn't political or don't bring politics into this. Like, unfortunately, all of life is very political. Sorry to break it to you. But food especially because, you know, the way that we treat certain foods 
is how we treat certain cultures. The way we price certain foods is how we view certain cultures. Like, why is it that all the Michelin star restaurants tend to be French and European? I mean, that's changing, but still it's like, you know, the pinnacle or like the, the idea of ideal food and like the high, high class cuisine is always considered to be like stemmed from French culture and French cuisine. And so it's like, who determined that? You know, so that's, I think that's, there's, I think it's silly to ever think that there's no politics when it comes to food, especially when food is used as a way to other folks. Exactly. And seasoning is important. So I don't know how we can even be <laughs> elevating food that doesn't use enough seasoning. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to get too controversial, but yeah, no, I was kidding. Well, I mean, one of the most, I think, controversial things actually is pineapple on pizza. And you know, this is something you and I, I this potentially could destroy. This. <laughs> I potentially, this. <laughs> this is something that could like, you know, I, I feel like if anything were to ever come between our friendship, it would be this pineapple on pizza debate. <laughs> I mean, there is no debate. Pineapple doesn't belong on pizza. Um, I think there are, you know, special places that we should keep everyone who loves pineapple on pizza. And the only other thing I'll say to that is, you know, I saw a great meme where someone's like, we're all talking about pineapple on pizza when the person who invented mint chocolate chip is still loose. I didn't know that was a thing. Like it's <laughs> what's wrong with mint chocolate chip? I have less issues with mint chocolate chip. I feel very strongly about pineapple on pizza. Yeah, I don't mean I don't like the green color of mint chocolate chip, but if I'm gonna have like mint flavored ice cream with chocolate chips in it, I'm totally fine with that. But anyways, um, you know, kind of talking uh talking about this appreciation for food brings me to our game. Um, just to remind everyone, uh, we're gonna bring up a topic and each of us are gonna decide if we're cold, lukewarm, or steamy on this topic. So the first one is fusion food. Uh, I'm going to go with lukewarm. It's really hard. It's like lukewarm to cold because I haven't had a lot of great like memories with it. The one that sticks in my mind is I went to a fusion restaurant. It was like Jamaican and Chinese and it wasn't good. It was no good. It was somewhere in Long Island just to put it out there for listeners. And <laughs> I don't remember the exact name of it, but it wasn't good. You know, I just want to go and... You know, I love when food is inspired by other food, but like traditionally fusion restaurants have not sat well with me. I would go very steamy for like restaurants that do it well. And I have experienced really amazing fusion cuisine. Like for example, um, uh, the Kogi truck. So the, the chef is Roy Choi. He's Korean of Korean descent. He grew up in Los Angeles. So the Kogi truck was... Um, it's pretty much like the, it's like Mexican cuisine with Korean cuisine. So you have like Korean style tacos and quesadillas. And I remember the first time um, he opened with this truck, I like went in line at like 8 PM or something and waited with, I was in college. So, you know, it was kind of, I, I had that kind of time and that energy. I probably wouldn't do that now, but I thought it was really amazing to see how these two, um, two foods can come together. So I, I feel like when it's done right, I think it's really amazing when it's like when you call something Asian wings, that's when it really pisses me off. It's like, what is Asian wings? Yeah, I was about to ask, what what is Asian wings? What right. Is that? Or, or yeah, it's like Asian, like Asian cuisine. It's it's a huge, huge. There's a it's so different. Like Chinese cuisine is so different from Vietnamese, from Thai, from Malaysian, from like all the, you know, all the all the places. So that's where I'm definitely cold. It's like when it's 
definitely someone who doesn't have an appreciation for like that specific culture and the flavors that's coming from it and just calling something like Asian fusion or whatnot. I'll have to take you to some places. I'm sorry you've had bad experiences. That sucks. Um, all right. The next one is picky eaters. Um, cold on that. I just feel like it's usually people who don't want to try things. And I really value stepping out of your comfort zone. And when I think about picky eaters, I think about my childhood. You know, we grew up as the only non-white family in our school district. And sometimes, you know, I'd have friends over when I was younger and they would say something about, you know, the food my mom was making. I was like, this food is great. And it would just not be something that would make me happy. So like, that's where I go to when I hear picky eaters, like people who don't want to move out of their their comfort zone and try something new. Um, yeah, I, I would agree for picky eaters. <laughs> it's like very, very cold. It's, I think it's one thing if you have allergies or, you know, there's value system in which you can't eat certain things, totally fine. But yeah, like to some people just don't want to try new things or they have problems with texture. I don't know. I guess because like, I'm so flexible and I'll try anything. I try to be understanding of them, but I definitely do give the side eye when people are picky eaters. Like one of my one of my worst nightmares is if I do decide to have children is having a child who's like a picky eater and who won't, who like can't stand the smell of fish sauce. Like that would really bother me. Like I think I would have a really hard time being friends with someone who like can't eat fish sauce because they think it smells bad. It's like, well, I'm committing to helping you take your child on a world tour to <laughs> find different foods that they love if this happens, because this would be a crisis and we would need to address it. Yeah, it would truly be, it, it would probably be the, the, the break, like the, how my heart would be breaking. It's like, if my child's picky and my niece is kind of picky right now, I'm really hoping she'll grow out of it. Her sisters yeah. aren't picky though. So I have hope for them. Yeah, I think she'll grow out of it. You know, all kids have their like dinosaur nugget phase. Oh yeah. She's in her like spam and rice phase and that's and noodles. And she has a very particular type of noodles she'll eat too. <sighs> all right, last one. Dating someone who can't cook or cooks mediocre food. <laughs> Oh, that's a cold, cold freezing for me. It's been so nice to see, you know, my brothers cook. My dad was cooking for us, like growing up along with my mom, you know, both of them cooked. And so I want to know that we can throw down in the kitchen together. And, you know, that's the, that's the only fusion I want in my life is a fusion of being partnered with someone and we're making some magic happen in the kitchen. So yeah, cold on someone who can't cook. Yeah, same for me too. It's just, what's the point? <laughs> I mean, it's like, even if I think like, oh, this is like the perfect person, but then they can't cook. And I'm like, nope, you can't be the perfect person if you can't cook. But you've made your bed, so you you, you got to lie. I have, <laughs> I have. Luckily, luckily, um, my partner is a very good cook. So I feel very grateful for that. I mean, that's probably probably the reason why I decided to, you know, couple up with him. Otherwise, it probably wouldn't have worked. There you go. So now you've learned something new for like one more thing when you're searching to set me up with someone, just make sure they can cook. <laughs> yes, that'll be the first thing. It's like, what kind of spices do you have in your pantry? And how do you feel about pineapple on pizza? <laughs> yeah, though I appreciate this spice, if they start with everything but the bagel seasoning, it's going to be a red flag. <laughs> okay. Good to know. Good to know. I'll put that down in my notes. 
All right. Well, I'm super excited to get into our stories. Um, they're going to touch a lot upon what we've shared, what we talked about, and excited to talk to them afterwards. So time to jump right into it. You ready? So our first story is from Chef Mo. And so that's Chef Mahasin. And she's someone who I've been connected to for many years. And it was really great to just bring her in to the podcast and record with her and just learn more about her background. So Chef Mo Thurman is originally from New Orleans and now lives in Colorado, where she operates So Tasty, specializing in gourmet diaspora prepared foods. She's also the owner of Year of the Dog Gourmet Hot Dog Stand in Ratton, New Mexico, and an amateur gardener and future homesteader. Growing up in New Orleans, food has always been central and essential to my life. It is the cultural heartbeat of a town that celebrates the many contributions of American and diaspora Black folk to this country. Someone once said to me, in Louisiana, we season our seasoning. This is accurate as hell. Food shapes the culture of New Orleans so much that people don't leave for fear of a flavorless life or return often and sometimes eventually come home to stay. Often my husband, who grew up in Detroit and then Alabama, will look at me and say, I miss home. But he ain't talking about Detroit and Alabama. In our 15 years together, So much of our relationship has been spent in New Orleans. And before we moved to Colorado, we lived there for three years. When this happens, I usually turn on the bounce music and whip up familiar flavors to cull the desire to pack up our lives in Colorado, to return to the stress of gentrification, racial tensions, environmental and health disasters, and hurricane season. My cancer tendencies to nurture coupled with my upbringing, naturally led me to becoming a chef. For a time in my 20s, I was waiting tables in Atlanta, aimless in my purpose. I knew that one day I wanted a family farm and also a nomadic life, but hadn't yet decided on how that would take shape. A series of traumas leading up to my 25th birthday caused a mental health crisis. And one night in a dream, I was giving a tour to a reporter in a restaurant I owned that didn't yet exist. Months later, I would say goodbye to Atlanta and be back home in New Orleans with a plan for culinary school. But then Katrina hit. And then I found myself in New York, thanks to a James Beard grant for an essay I'd written about preserving black food pathways. Culinary school was wonderful and challenging, but working years in restaurants, I'd learned three things. Despite the fact that the best restaurants in the world are packed with black and brown faces shoulder to shoulder on the line, kitchens are run by abusive white men. The second is that there's no women anywhere. And the third, barely any black women, despite them being the innovators of the many hybrids of Southern American cuisine. I knew myself enough to know that I'd somehow be my own boss. During school, I began a long-distance relationship with my now-husband, And in the seven years after graduating, I would split time between Phoenix and a dude ranch in southern Colorado, move back to Atlanta to have our daughter, and then end up back in New Orleans again. At this point, I'd achieved gig-to-gig stability. My husband and I did a successful run of pop-ups in bars around New Orleans, and then on a whim, we moved to Colorado and our business thrived. 
At the beginning of 2020, we had a spring that was booked solid. We were collecting equipment and writing grants for a restaurant space we are still renting. We live in a small town, and so it's easy to be isolated from the realities of the world. Despite watching COVID unfold in the world, I was planning a catering event for 150 people at the end of March because there's no rest in food service. And because things rarely permeate the skin of small town life, then suddenly in a single day, every client on our spring roster called to cancel or reschedule. I suddenly found myself in a place I hadn't been since giving birth 12 years ago, unemployed and with lots of time on my hands. Anxiety and stress quickly kicked in. Food tastes good, but depending on it for your livelihood is akin to jumping out of a plane every day with no parachute. We were fortunate enough to have a small savings. And so two weeks in when it was obvious quarantine was real and here to stay, I began to nest. To combat my anxiety, stress, and depression, I began planning for the future differently. I joined a Facebook group for Black women who garden and began to prepare for a farm I don't yet own. I am a plant killer. So seeing things grow has been inspiring. I regularly cry when something sprouts and the plants get reggae tunes and dates with an electric toothbrush. I also used this time to change my relationship with food, to stop seeing it as a chore or job, and to take back the pleasure of cooking and eating. I'm eating more intentional meals because chefs don't eat meals, y'all. We graze, we grab a snack, we shovel a sandwich in our mouths so we can continue with the business of feeding others. This part was so easy to do with so much free time. My daughter and I have been planning meals around garden harvests and new cuisines. We regularly dine outside, and when we are done, I make a plate for my ancestors, and when time allows, sit with them in gratitude. I'm cleaning and organizing the kitchen constantly to keep up with and form better habits. This time has helped me remember why I got into this work as I feed my passion for food justice and how it relates to my blackness by reading, putting these hands in the dirt, and reimagining what our business looks like when we center blackness, sovereignty, and food security. Most importantly in this stillness, I am reminded of the power of my nurturing wild spirit that has led me to this place and a literal dream sent to me that allowed me to be a manifestation of my ancestors' wildest dreams. Thank you so much, Mo, for being with us here today. Uh, We're so excited to have you talk a little bit more about your story. I love that through your story, we were able to see your food journey. And especially during this time where a lot of us are not able to travel, it was just really nice to be able to feel you know, the bustle in New Orleans and then New York City, and then now where you are in Colorado. So now that you've settled in Colorado for the time being, could you tell us a little bit about the food that you serve and how it represents you? When we moved to Colorado, uh, we were known for pie and um, specifically Jamaican meat patties. And we do these, uh, a variation of a bunch of different meat and fruit hand pies. And we do farmer's markets around Colorado. And then we also had a catering aspect of our business. Well, of course, we're from New Orleans. And so we do a lot of Creole food 
uh, with that part of our business. Um, but we're really, as we're, we're moving forward, we recently um, had our whole calendar wiped out because of coronavirus. Around June or July, we were like, okay, this is, we need to have a new plan. Um, we're going to go into the rest of this year and nothing else is going to happen. Um, we're going to have to figure something else out. Our business, the way food licensing and things like that works, you sort of go into a pocket and then because of um, health reasons, they put they keep you there. So like if you do, let's say food trucks, then they're going to want you to have a certain type of commissary kitchen you work out of and it's gotta be licensed a certain way and you've gotta follow these certain types of guidelines and um, you can't just like go get a food truck if you have a license for a restaurant. You have to have a separate food truck license for that. You also have to have, if you are catering, like we were, um, we had to have separate licensing for food truck um, and then for the catering aspect of our business and then a cottage license to cover doing pies and things at the farmer's markets. Um, so um, what ended up happening with Corona was that um, farmer's markets got canceled across Colorado and all of our catering gigs got shut down. And those were our two stream of incomes for our business. And so again, by July, it was clear that we were not going to have any work um, for the rest of the year. And we couldn't just pivot and do a thing we had to like invest time and money into like getting new licensing and all of those things. And then we just sort of happened to fall across this little box of a building. And so we went and looked at it and it was turnkey. We could do very simple foods out of it. It happened to be around the corner from a commissary kitchen. Um, it's not in the town we live in. It's across the pass um, into New Mexico, into the next small town over. Um, but the towns sort of operate as one town together. We live in Trinidad, Colorado. And so, um, but it was cheap rent. We could go in, slap some paint on the walls, start advertising and open. Um, and then um, one of the things that we had been doing um, sporadically was that we do have a few food trucks and um, we were doing hot dogs off the food truck. And just like gourmet, like tasty, big jumbo dogs. Um, so people kind of knew us for that too. So now... <laughs> Um, what used to be just like something we would do for like, you know, the random festival has now switched over as our main income. So we've moved into this little box building restaurant and we do gourmet hot dogs and gourmet sides. Um, but we incorporate a lot of Asian and Creole foods, um, which really complement each other really mm -hmm. well has always been something we've been you know, especially if you spend time in New Orleans like there's some amazing Vietnamese food in New Orleans yeah. um they really have yes yes they really have you know the mixture of like Creole seasonings with Vietnamese food is like amazing so we do hot dogs with crawfish etouffee on them we do a banh mi style hot dog and we've got gumbo on the menu red beans and rice and then um, a yakamine. And yakamine is like drunk food in New Orleans. And it's um, like a noodle, but it's a beef broth with beef and boiled eggs and scallions. And um, it's like something you find in New Orleans at like two o'clock in the morning in like the world's worst bar, but they've got like the most <laughs> amazing food. And this has been the thing that has been like 
since we opened, people are like, what is this, this Yagamine on your menu? And that's really like a callback to like making, like me being homesick and wanting to have that. My, I lost my dad earlier this year during quarantine and that was one of his favorites. He actually spent some time in Colorado. He came out and lived with us for almost a year. And when it got cold, we were eating Yagamine all the time. <laughs> and so um, it's such a great comfort food. And so now that the cool weather has hit, people are like, you know, there's that, that hot dog place that's over in Raton. It's like 20 minutes from town, but you can like go there and, but don't necessarily get the hot dogs. <laughs> um, so that's been really interesting. And so we've just got this little thing going um, and a few projects attached to that um, to get through uh, these next six months. And then we've got a bunch of sort of like different projects and then we'll be picking up catering um, for everything that we've got rescheduled for next year. But for now, yeah, now people did just know us for pie, but now they know us for the, the, the people who make the good hot dogs and the <laughs> Asian noodles. <laughs> I, <laughs> like, like, that's, <laughs> that's like the best transformation. You go from pies to Asian noodles to uh, hot dogs. I, I feel like you've really spanned yeah. America <laughs> with all of that. Yeah. And uh, I, I love just hearing about the transformation of your business, um, especially just in need of COVID. And felt like I went on a whole journey. You mentioned Jamaican beef patties and my family's from the West Indies. My parents are from Guyana and I was born in Grenada. And it just was taking me back to times when like a beef patty to me felt like home. Even when I was in Boston and right. going to college there. <laughs> yeah, like my a friend of my dad who went to seminary with him, he would take me, I would go to their church. I would travel like an hour on the tee to go to their church. And then afterwards he and his wife would take me to get uh, beef patties. And it was like this thing that just like helped me feel like a little bit more grounded in like a space in a city that I didn't always feel that grounded. So just like hearing these stories of your different connections was really great. But one thing I'd love to hear more about with your business is that you mentioned that all of this time recently, especially this year, allowed you to reimagine what your business could look like when you center Blackness and sovereignty and food security. And can you elaborate on what this imagination and like reimagination of your business looked like when you centered those things? So it actually has something to do with the pies, <laughs> specifically the Jamaican meat patties. Um, it's like you said, it's one of those things that reminds people of a place and um, I am of the mindset that you can eat good comfort foods with as long as the, you know, as they've got quality ingredients in them. For me, it's the knocking out the, the junk because our food is not bad food, but it seems to have been labeled that way. And so before COVID happened, we had started to talk about um, mass producing the, the Jamaican meat patties. And so we started to take our recipe and adapt it to uh, this company called Natural Grocers. And they are like a smaller version of Whole Foods. Um, but one of the things about Natural Grocers is they don't have uh, fresh baked goods in their stores. Um, part of their business model is to outsource baked goods to other small businesses um, so that they're creating sort of a community atmosphere wherever they are. And they've got 100 or so stores spread across the, 
Southwest uh, America. And so we, again, we modified our recipe. Um, they have a list of like no-no ingredients, um, which makes the food healthy. It doesn't have uh, preservatives, um, yada, 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 yada. So I am always about telling a good story. And um, for me, I feel like there's so many stories to be told about diaspora foods that aren't being told. And so what does that mean for our communities when we are um, calling back to our ancestors and um, reclaiming those foods, just being able to own those foods in a way that we're meant to. We just don't have these connections to the land that we need to have um, and connection to our foods, connection to our cultures. And there's such an awakening that's happening in America right now. You can see it happening in these little pockets. But my real like full dream would be to um, have a nonprofit side of our business that moves into um, community living, farming practices, uh, monetizing the food that we would grow in a community, and then using that as a source of income for the community. My the husband and I met in a restaurant, but when we started dating, he was building houses. And so, um, and that was in 2008, right before the crash, and then everything happened. Um, and then we both ended up starting this food business together. Um, but he and I have always talked about what it would mean um, to like be like full black hippies and like live off the land, live communally with uh, other black people, go completely off grid, and then ha- but how would those communities s- sustain themselves? So the idea would be that we would be producing um, something like the meat patties. Um, we've got some other. Uh, products that we have been testing, different types of spice blends, but all of it is diaspora related. So Creole foods, Caribbean foods, West African foods, North African foods, um, and then how we could basically turn, um, you know, small communities of of people into these, you know, economic machines, um, just be sort of living on their own. And then um, I don't know if you're familiar with... um, what is the company? It's our Organic Farms. No, they, I don't think I've heard of them. So they're they're a dairy farm, and they are a cooperative. So they're um, what they do is they um, operate as an umbrella company for a series of farms that are only related to them by the name Organic Farms. So they buy organic dairy products from small family farms. And then all of those companies essentially are part owner in the company. Um, the idea of collective economics, how those models could be used to empower Black people and communities um, is ideally where we would see ourselves moving towards. And again, it just starts with this idea that we would mass produce these pies and um, use the resources from that to fund this other aspect of our business. I really love that image of just starting with the pie um, and how it, when we ask you the question around 
you know, what the reimagination of your business looks like. You said it started with the pie. And so seeing it kind of full circle and thinking about the shape of a pie, it's just, it feels very, um, it feels very symbolic and beautiful. Mm -hmm. Also sounds like the name of a great autobiography that you will write (laughs) later. (laughs) It started with the pie. Uh, what you said about diaspora communities really resonated with me. And also I love, I feel like we were all meant to meet because you had mentioned like Creole and Vietnamese cuisine and I'm Vietnamese. My family is from Vietnam and I grew up eating actually Vietnamese Creole fusion because after uh, Katrina hit, uh, there was a Vietnamese family from New Orleans who came to where I grew up in Southern California and introduced us to this idea of Vietnamese Creole. And I learned that they weren't able to do it in Louisiana because in Louisiana, you know, it's very strict about what Creole is. So once they moved to California, they were then able to make, uh, mix it with like some more Vietnamese flavors. But it's, you know, one of my favorite cuisines growing up. And it's amazing how the two fuse together so perfectly. And then hearing how Odelia resonated as well with the the, um, the meat pies, I guess it feels like a very serendipitous event that we all kind of came together <laughs> over this. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. When I was growing up, I had, um, New Orleans had like one of those, like a magnet system where you could like test into a school. And so you had like the regular public system, but then you have like magnet schools that existed within the public system. And I went to a magnet school called McMain and McMain, was incredibly diverse like something like you would see like on someone's like on a tv show where people were like trying to check the boxes and make sure (laughs) they got all the people I had Korean friends I had Vietnamese friends I had black friends I had white friends New Orleans has the second largest community of Hondurans outside of Honduras and so I had tons of Honduran friends (laughs) um and you know and it was you know, you went to the magnet school. So technically you were all the smart kids. So, you know, everybody kind of intermingled together and got along. It was so like New Orleans has two separate entities of it too, because there is a part of New Orleans that's very sort of intermingled with cultures, but then there's also a very black part of New Orleans and then a very white part of New Orleans. And then sometimes all those New Orleanses will come together, <laughs> depending yeah. on the festival or the time of the year or whatever. It felt like this little community of people that, you know, um, we shared, you know, different aspects of our cultures and ideas, you know, like you're like in school and like you got snacks in your bag mm-hmm. and no one care, no one care, no one cares about your weird snacks. No one's making fun of you. (laughs) Right. No one's making fun of you because you got weird snacks. And I used, you know, we used to, um, there was like an Asian grocery store that was near the school and kids would go and grab snacks from there. And so like everybody had weird Asian snacks. (laughs) Everybody had, like, because New Orleans is a food community, that's how, you know, as teenagers, you connect through food just like the adults around you do. So 
Oh, um, I love that. Cause growing up, you know, we were the only non-white family in our school district. So if a friend came over, I had to be like, okay, mom, we got to pull out the bland food, you know, cause it wasn't <laughs> like, it's like she did anything that was like, even remotely, like what someone would consider like quote unquote, like ethnic. And the kids would be like, oh, I don't want to eat that. Or like, what's this? Like I had one or two friends who would try it, but I feel like I really missed out on being able to like try all these like different cultures, this image that you're painting of uh, that things weren't like weird food. It was like, oh, I'm connecting to other youth around me, like through their food and culture. Yeah, New Orleans is like, it sounds crazy, but it's a great place to raise a teenager. There's a certain like freedom in the in it because um, every everybody's partying. It's not just like, like you're not, like it's hard to be like a kid sneaking out and partying and doing something bad because like, there's sort of this like bubble of protection of like party time. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and then you get to kind of explore the city and there's a lot of New Orleans is very kid friendly in terms of like it's entertainment. So, you know, like there's always going to be kids at festivals and sometimes even in jazz bars. <laughs> and so there's this very sort of different free. And then also because of the arts aspect you've got young kids who are participating in the entertainment of the city. And so they're going to be in these adult spaces. We actually have been in very in earnest talking about um, going back to New Orleans just long enough for our daughter to go to high school there just so she can have the experience. Because they're like, it really definitely shaped the type of person I am in terms of like how I look at the world how I view people um and it was a super awesome experience like I like I kind of feel like I should go back so I could get like so she could have the experience which sounds crazy because and we love Colorado and we're like well how would we make that work we've got about three years to figure it out so I gotta make this pie thing happen for real (laughs) yes I love it and it, it really shows how much you love you know the place that you're willing to think about this relocation because relocation is so tough but yeah, I feel like I would be a much cooler person if I had grown up in New Orleans as a teen, as, a port, as opposed to my kind of sleepy suburban area that I grew up in. <laughs> Did you ever have um, like the, the squid snack when you were growing up in New Orleans? They're like, it's like shredded squid. Um, I don't know if I've ever <laughs> had that before. I used to eat the little dry fish. Okay. You did the dry um, fish. That's great. <laughs> yes. You should eat the little dry fish. I love sesame snacks. Okay. And I'll, any of those little like, like fish chips, like the, like the puffy ones that yeah. have like shrimp flavors. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, so Vina, Vina, what would be the top of the Asian food snack chain? Like if you heard that someone ate it, you were like, wow, that person went there. Oh, that's so tough. It, it really varies, but like, you know, kind of where you grew up and what you had access to. But I asked about the squid snack because that like, that when you open it up, the whole room smells like squid. And I, whenever I, whenever I smell it, it's just like, it smells like childhood to me, but essentially it's dried squid and it's been tenderized. It's very sweet. And like the more you chew on it, the more sweetness of the squid is like it sounds delicious yeah but it's like one of those snacks where people look at it they're like ew what is that if you're not you know obviously used to that but I grew up in like predominantly I think like 70 percent of my school were Vietnamese like 
where I grew up was called Little Saigon. So we were familiar with eating those kind of things. So it wasn't like gross or anything like that. But um, I would say the dry squid, the shrimp snacks, that's a definite one too. Um, and then the third one. So when I was growing up, we did this thing with like instant noodles. There is a spe specific brand. It's like a Thai noodle called Mama. And yes. you know Mama. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and you would crunch it up, right? And you would use the powder. Yes, yes. Yeah. You don't. Fr yeah, you eat it raw. You eat it raw, <laughs> and then at the very end, you would get the leftover powder, and that would be that would just be like the like the best. Like you would get it all so your bad fingers. for you. Oh, oh my gosh! So Every bad. day after school, let's the elementary. Look, the elementary school that I went to um, was in the middle of the French Quarter in New Orleans. And so there was, and there was no public bus, like school bus system, like no yellow buses. Mm -hmm. You had a ticket and you got on the public bus and that's how you got to and from school. And there was a little corner store that was on the corner of St. Philip and Rampart. And it was an old Vietnamese couple that ran the grocery store and they sold the packs. And I don't know how we knew that that was how you did it, but <laughs> when we would crunch them up while we were waiting for the bus to come. And sprinkle a little powder. Oh, so good. <laughs> this makes me so happy to hear. Like, I'm all the way over in Southern California. You were in New Orleans and we were eating the same snack and we're talking about it here probably decades later. That's so awesome. <laughs> the power of food. Like how, how, do, how do people know to do that? I wonder if like one, one kid started it and then they were like. Right, exactly. Cousins. Look, Probably. and I was just over in Indiana trying to get kids to try some hot sauce. So... <laughs> <laughs> Oh, poor Odelia. <laughs> so uh, we would love to, like, you've just shared so many wonderful stories about food with us. And it's clearly, you know, so close and like dear to your heart and how you express yourself. So if you were putting together a plate of food that would represent who you are to let someone know about your culture, your personality, before they even met you, what would be on that plate? Oh, culture and personality see those are those could be two really different things because because Let's go personality then like what would you put on personality your wise I'm just a soup and nachos kind of gal <laughs> and um you know like we eat a lot of salads and we're really trying to like take care of ourselves right now since the quarantine started we've really like been um hunkering down and trying to be better about health um we had i you know some health issues both my husband and i um, a couple of years ago and you know we're just kind of getting out of the on the other side of that so it's like everything that i eat personally these days is like low sugar salads lots of like seafood which is normal so there's a guy who comes through with a truck from Baton Rouge um, and he delivers uh, seafood to Northern New Mexico, Colorado and um, Wyoming. And sometimes he goes to like the Dakotas in like a refrigerator truck. And so- Who is this man? <laughs> right, he's a magical seafood man. <laughs> so we pick up like hordes and hordes of um, seafood from New Orleans and just stock it in our deep freezer in our garage. Um, so because we're landlocked in Colorado and so there's no place we can get seafood from so it, yeah so it's a lot of seafood and salads um 
Um, if I'm treating myself, it's definitely New Orleans food. So it's crawfish pasta, um, which is like creamy and spicy. And, um, or um, I'm eating a lot of gumbo these days because we sell it in the restaurant now. So um, I'm always like, all right, let me grab gumbo, which is perfect for me because I love soup. <laughs> I love soup. <laughs> Um, I love soup. My daughter's trying to convince me to do a 365 day soup challenge. She's all about food challenges. She's 12. Oh, I'll do that with She's, you. I, I love right? soup. I also She's love 12 soup. and she wants to, she thinks competitive eating is like the most amazing thing ever. And so she's always like food challenge time. And we're always doing food challenges at home. Um, so she's like, could you eat soup every day? Could you do it, mom? Could you eat 365 days worth of soup? I challenge you. I challenge you to soup <laughs> to the soup challenge. So that's been the talk around here lately. Um, but yeah, like I'm really about comfort food. It's, I went to um, a classically trained culinary school in New York um, that was started by uh, Jacques Pepin and a bunch of other chefs. And so I learned how to make very classically French food, but I grew up in New Orleans and I'm used to these comfort foods and these, you know, lavish Southern meals. Um, so it's hard to like, like besides me saying, oh, I'm a, like a soup and salad and nachos kind of gal, which is pretty much accurate. Like it's hard to pinpoint like a, a, a one thing. I guess it would be, I guess it would be like Creole gumbo etouffee that's definitely my favorite but I definitely don't enjoy it's definitely an indulgence these days yeah that's great though an indulgence uh your your choice is as complex as your food journey but thank you so <laughs> much for just joining us today and now you've given Vina and myself um a you know thinking about can we eat soup every day and also uh Vina I think we might need to find this man who is traveling up through the southwest into the Rockies um carrying seafood <laughs> Look, from first, New Orleans we, we have to doing, find him <laughs> the first thing we're doing post quarantine is throwing a crawfish boil <gasps> that would be my dream so, <laughs> I miss crawfish boil so much so if you're ever near Colorado if you're in or near Colorado around April, May, hopefully we'll get, we'll be past this thing en enough to be around people again. Um, crawfish season, I usually like to get one off at the end of April. <laughs> Ooh, that'd be so good. Oh, I miss, yeah. I miss having crawfish so much. That sounds good. Well, we'll end on that invitation for ourselves and our <laughs> listeners to, you know, dream about the spring, being outside together, eating some crawfish. Yeah, absolutely. All right, thank, thank you. you. Thanks so much. Our next story is from Ashley Campbell, who is a poet and preacher with Big Mama Energy, who loves to critically and tenderly explore the intersections of her mixed Latinx and white identity and growing up globetrotting as a third culture kid. Here's Ashley's story. My family planned a long-awaited visit to my mother's side of the family in Peru for March 2020. As soon as we bought our tickets, we started talking about what we would eat. And we booked my mom's 60th birthday lunch at a famous restaurant in Lima, pouring over the menu online and texting each other about it. I spent as much time thinking about the ceviche and chicharron sandwiches I would eat 
as I did thinking about how strange it is to return to a place that feels like home, but also feels like it doesn't belong to me. The cry of the second generation immigrant's heart. After all that planning and anticipation, my parents, sisters, and our families were in Peru when the pandemic hit there. It was the first time I had been back to visit in nine years. The first time my husband was visiting. The first time my children set foot on my mother's homeland. We flew from Canada in March, wintry and snowy, to Lima, which was hot and humid and glorious. As we traveled, a long-awaited family reunion ahead, we took extra hand sanitizer with us, but no masks. It just wasn't expected yet on our continent. A little over a week into our trip, Peru had its first confirmed case of COVID-19. On some level, we knew things would unravel when we heard the news. But we were basking in the sunshine with family we hadn't seen in years. And the world still felt charmed for us prodigals back on Peruvian soil. We were staying at a rental in the beach town near my abuelito's house. And we would go to his house every day to eat with my tias, cousins, and my parents. We ate fruit from the jungle we hadn't tasted in almost a decade, like little sour fruit called ciruelas and creamy avocados the size of your head. One of my tias made homemade rocoto hot sauce that made my eyes water from the, just the smell and was way too spicy for my gringified tongue. I was surprised by how moved and happy I was whenever my three kids tried and loved something Peruvian, from chicha morada, a drink made from purple corn, to gobbling up maracuya, which is just the word for passion fruit in Spanish. But if anyone tries to teach my kids a word other than maracuya, there will be hell to pay. Then, the president announced a countrywide lockdown, stating that international borders would shut down in 36 hours. We quickly realized that we would be stuck in lockdown at our rundown party house rentals, three couples and six kids ranging from two to 15. We wouldn't even be allowed to go visit my abuelito and tia and parents. We woke up one morning to martial law and soldiers patrolling the streets to enforce the strict lockdown rules. Thankfully, in the days between the first case of COVID in Peru and the lockdown, my intuition had told me to prepare. I had gone to the market in town and bought several kilos of rice, even though we were planning to eat out or at my abuelitos. I also bought beans and cereal and piles of Doña Pepa cookies because they are, somewhat unforgivably, my favorite Peruvian food. They are this packaged vanilla cookie covered in mediocre chocolate and smothered in rainbow sprinkles. It comes in little red foil packs of two cookies, perfect for sharing, which I never do. My sisters and I ate them as children, bought our own boxes of them as teenagers, and I had convinced my kids in just a week in Peru that they were the best cookie ever. 
I bought over 20 Doña Pepas at three different corner stores, quietly putting them in a drawer in case we would need comfort food. How prophetic an act that turned out to be. We went from buying delicious street food and enjoying homemade meals with our family to having to cook all our food ourselves in a strangely outfitted kitchen. It was massive and had 10 plastic fruit bowls, but only one frying pan with a handle. We had to learn how to bleach treat all the fresh fruit and vegetables. And once we bought a whole fish and had to sheepishly ask the caretaker of the rental if she could please show us how to gut and prepare it. Everyone in the house coped with the stress and strangeness of lockdown in their own way. We took turns despairing and encouraging each other. I would pull out Doña Pepa's from my secret drawer whenever someone was feeling really low. But mealtimes brought a sense of normalcy. All of us gathered at the table with the thick plastic tablecloth, grateful to be together in Peru, even in these strangest of circumstances. We mostly ate rice and lentils with packaged ají amarillo, a common sauce made with the Peruvian yellow pepper. At the dining table, we laughed and cried and drank pisco together until the Canadian government shipped us home. It's worth noting that the kids and teens drowned their sorrows in maracuyá juice. Welcome, Ashley. It's so great to have you. I love listening to your piece and just like getting transported to Peru and this like very specific moment in time that's also still feels very real uh, as we are in our next, our second shelter in place in California and many other places right now. And, you know, I just got home for the holidays. And my first question to you is how was it being locked down with your family during that time? Uh, it was an incredible experience. Uh, the house that we were locked down in was large, and so that was such a gift. We weren't on top of each other. We were three married couples, uh, two of us with three kids each. Um, so there was a lot of people in this one house, but it was four stories and had lots of bathrooms. Uh, so it, it definitely had its little rustic <laughs> things and, 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 you know, inconveniences, but we had lots of space and um, it was actually such a special experience because my sisters and I are very spread out in age. My older sister is 10 years older than me and my younger sister is six years younger than me. So we had a moment I think it was like two or three days into the lockdown where we just looked at each other and we were like, we have not lived in the same house just doing everyday life for almost a decade. It, it was incredible uh, to be, you know, grown up married women just doing everyday life together under quite extreme circumstances. But to be in Peru, to be so glad to be together. Uh, yeah, it was just such, it was such a gift. That sounds so nice. I mean, I'm so glad that you were able to find, you know, that joy and that family connection despite all the chaos that was surrounding you. It kind of reminds me like when I was a kid, um, whenever our lights would go out or the electricity would just be blown out, all the family would just huddle together. And it was the one time that everyone in the house would just be all together because we were always off busy doing our own things. 
So when I read that um, in your piece or when I heard that in your piece, it just made me think of that moment too of being close to my family and um, you know, just finding moments to connect with each other. So I, I really love that image and uh, would have loved to hear some of the conversations that you guys must have had <laughs> during that time. And another thing that really spoke to me about your piece was you were talking about how it was one of the first times that, well, it was the first time that your children were able to go back to Peru and experience, you know, their, their mother's culture. And so I'm curious, you know, beyond them going to Peru, what are some of the other ways in which you try to preserve aspects of your culture and how do you then pass that on to your children? I am a mixed kid. Uh, my mom is Peruvian and my dad is a Canadian of Scottish descent. Um, and my husband is a mixed kid, uh, not uh, of color. He's, he's white, but of a mixed background. His mom is a French immigrant, first generation French immigrant uh, to Canada. And his dad is um, a white Scottish descent Canadian. Uh, so we are two mixed kids raising mixed kids. And I really struggled with my identity growing up uh, when I was younger uh, and, and living at home. My mom wasn't actively teaching us about being Peruvian. Um, we lived uh, not in Canada. I actually was born and grew up uh, in Africa. And I say Africa and not a specific country because I actually moved around a lot. I've lived in six different African countries um, uh, between the ages of being born in Niger and finishing high school in South Africa. Um, and we also lived in Central America. My little sister was born in Honduras. My older sister was born in Peru. Uh, so we're a very uh, mixed up <laughs> family from a lot of places. And growing up, my mom wasn't actively teaching us about uh, proving culture and identity, but we did go back to Peru quite often uh, to visit my extended family. So that was really my touchstone growing up for what it meant to be Peruvian was to go back every couple of years and, and spend time with my uh, grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins and, and live there for sometimes just a couple of weeks, sometimes up to a month, a month and a half. Um, and since I left home and, and now I'm older and my mom is older and, and I actually live with my mom and dad now here in Canada, um, my mom is more actively teaching us her Peruvian culture. It's like at some point after I'd left home already, she kind of went through this uh, renaissance of, of realizing that she wanted to like cook Peruvian food uh, for her family more often and talk about being Peruvian. And so that's been really cool is my kids are getting to experience that from their grandmother in a way that I didn't necessarily grow up with. Um, and so they're growing up eating more home-cooked Peruvian food than I did. I would eat that food when we were in Peru, but it wasn't that often that my mom would cook it up when we were just in our home, whatever country we were living in. Um, but my kids are growing up with their grandmother who's speaking to them in Spanish and um, who's uh, making Peruvian dishes for Sunday lunch. And, and so, and I actively tell my kids, you're Latino, you, this is a food from Peru. You are, you are from Peru, your family is from Peru. That's your grandmother's country. And I make sure to say that so that they know that that's a thing that they can work through, that, that they can say like, yes, I, I have a grandparent from Peru and, and, and now they've been there. And, and I do the same for their other cultures that they come from as well. Like we talk about how they're French 
as well. And we talk about how they are Canadian. And um, I'm homeschooling my kids right now because of the pandemic. And we're reading a history book um, called Turtle Island, the first peoples of North America, because I want to be able to teach them and talk about even their colonial, the colonial legacy of our families as well. And, and, and introduce them to the idea that we have amazing Scottish heritage that we can talk about, but that we also need to uh, wrestle with and grapple with our colonial heritage as immigrants in this land and, and settlers on this land. And so I just, my whole approach is to just talk about it and to say it and to make sure that that language and those words of being Latino, of being French, of, of this is part of our culture, of, of wrestling with being settlers, of, of learning about this land that we're on, that all of that is just a part of our normal family conversation. I think those are kind of the main ways that, that I'm trying to actively pass on um, culture and identity to my kids. Yeah, I think that's really beautiful and just really speaks to the complexity of identities, especially when we have a multitude of identity in us. And there are, even if there's just like one, you know, more dominant identity that we kind of navigate through the world, like each of those other identities informs us. And it's so Mm -hmm. important for us to face uh, the challenges, you know, like meet it head on, like talk about all the complex nature of a colonial past, but also one, you know, that you might've faced oppression and listening to you. It just really reminded me so much of so many other people's stories I've heard. And I truly believe that culture comes back around again. And people, you know, as they're moving around with their children, sometimes think to themselves like, oh, I need to be in this moment. I need to make sure my kids are fitting in 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 this culture. And Mm -hmm. as we get older and a little bit more reflective, we want to make sure that that culture that's in us gets passed on. And I see that relationship between grandparents and grandchildren happen so often where uh, they are speaking the language when they're younger and like they're passing on the story. And, you know, I just see that so often. And it's really amazing to see and uh, just hear you talk about. And it really reminded me of that uh, moment in your story where you're talking about language and you're talking Mm -hmm. about Marcuya and how (laughs) important that is for your uh, children to like say that and so like what role has language played in terms of you being able to like sit with all these multitudes of culture? Yeah language is so complex and I think heart achy for me. I speak Spanish and, and my older sister does too and And my mom speaks Spanish to us. And actually my dad is fluent in Spanish as well. But for some reason in our family, we defaulted to English a lot. Um, And so we, I I wouldn't say that I necessarily learned Spanish speaking it at home with my mom and dad. Um, I think it was primarily because when I was uh, between the ages of uh, four and eight, I think it would have been around there. Yeah, around there, <laughs> we lived in Latin America, and my aunt, um, my older aunt Tia Tita, came to live with us at different points during that time, and she only spoke Spanish, and um, and I think that's why my Spanish is as solid as it is. And then I took Spanish in high school and found that like my family Spanish was better than I thought it was. Um, and so I speak Spanish, but my youngest sister doesn't speak Spanish. She understands a lot. Um, and she can definitely like, like make herself understood if she needs to, but she doesn't speak fluently. And I, I know that's been like a source of sorrow. Then the interesting thing is I went to a French high school in um, Chad in South Africa. And so I 
learned French when I was in grade six and I'm, I'm fluent in French and actually my French is better than my Spanish because I graduated high school with a French baccalaureate. And, and that's like a source of pain for me that my French is better than my Spanish. And now I'm married to someone who is half French and who his mom's mother tongue is French you know, we want to pass on his, his, he grew up speaking French with his mom and, and we want to pass on that French to, to their, to our kids as well. And I speak French, so it should be easy, but I find myself resisting it. Um, and I find myself having a lot of really heart achy feelings about it because I'm so scared that the French is going to replace the Spanish. And it's like, there's nothing, French is great. Like it's not, it's neither here nor there about the specific language, but what, what they mean to, to me as, as a Latina who grew up overseas, who had to learn French for school and, and who feels like the Spanish is slipping away from my family. Um, and so, yeah, language really does matter. And, and so even all that to say that the, the, the few words of Spanish my kids do actively speak are so precious to me. And when my mom says something to them in Spanish and they understand it, that means so much to me. And I, I wish that I was better at actively just speaking to them in Spanish and teaching it to them. And, and I don't know why I'm not. Um, so I've, I've been thinking about it a lot and I think it's just um, force of habit. It's really hard to be the only one speaking a language. And my mom and I will sometimes speak in Spanish together and that's great. But even we've kind of been taken over by just the ease of just speaking in English because we're surrounded by English. And it's given me a lot more empathy for, for those who are constantly speaking their second language um, because Spanish is my second language. And so it's, it's just tiring mentally to try and speak my second language all the time. Yeah, and I totally get you on the, you know, feeling comfortable in a language and kind of defaulting to that, where, but still feeling that kind of heartache towards your, you know, your native tongue or your mother tongue or a language that you feel represents you in some sort of way. I think it's interesting to think about um, who we are when we speak different languages and how we're different. Like, I feel like Vina as the English speaker is different than Vina as the Spanish speaker and Vietnamese speaker. And so I think whenever well, what I notice actually is I become, sometimes I get really frustrated because I feel like I can't express who I am fully in certain languages. So Vietnamese is my first language. I grew up speaking it, but over time, you know, I went to school and that was all in English and everyone around me was speaking English. As a matter of fact, like if you were speaking Vietnamese in my school, people would like make fun of you, even though we were all Vietnamese and we lived in a Vietnamese neighborhood, people will call you FOB, which stands for fresh off the boat, which is like a really derogatory term. And even now, you know, like whenever you go into buildings and people have a key FOB that you can use to touch on the door and enters in the building, whenever people are like, oh, just use my FOB, it like really triggers something in me. Because, oh no. <laughs> yeah, it's a really derogative term and it was very offensive and it was terms that we would use to like make fun of each other, to other one another which is crazy. Mm -hmm. But anyways, in terms of language, it's crazy when you're like, oh, I, you said you were more fluent in French than in Spanish. And for me, for a while, I was more fluent in Spanish than Vietnamese because I just knew Vietnamese from, you know, from the context of home. So I could like listen and speak, but I couldn't really express my feelings or I couldn't verbalize like really complex thoughts in the same way that I could do that with Spanish because I had learned that more formally. 
but I felt such a disconnect with my culture and identity because I was missing this language piece. So I've been learning Vietnamese again. I can finally read and write now. Before I could always speak, but I was pretty much illiterate in like reading and writing. And now I finally have learned it and it's really opened up like a new, a whole new door to me in understanding and interpreting my culture. It's crazy to think of like how long it took me to finally see that. And I don't have children, but I have a seven-year-old niece and um, I was just talking to her today. And I was like, oh, you know, we're like strong Vietnamese women. And she's like, I'm not Vietnamese. And I was like, what do you mean you're not Vietnamese? She's like, I'm American. I'm like, no, you're not. You are Vietnamese American. You know, we speak Vietnamese, we eat Vietnamese food. Your parents are from Vietnam. Your grandparents are from Vietnam. Your great grandparents are from Vietnam. And so I recognize how important it is to continue speaking to her in Vietnamese because I speak to her in English because it's comfortable um, and keep telling her how special our Vietnamese culture is because we really have to hang on to it. Western society and Western um, traditions are so strong. The, the lure of the American culture is very strong. And yeah. so it's that hyphen too, you know, that hyphen makes you feel like you have to like choose one instead of understanding that hyphen is like you get to bridge two cultures. Yeah, sure. definitely. I see it definitely as a bridge, not a either or. It's not a, what's that? It's not a forward slash. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny you mentioned your niece. Um, my, my niece is 13, 14 years old now. She was 13 when we were on lockdown earlier this year. And she... I feel like there's a revolution uh, happening because I think my older sister is fully Peruvian and was born in Peru and looks more like my mom. Um, so I think it's maybe been less of a, well, that's my older sister and she has her identity journey. And then I think my younger sister and I have talked about struggling with our Latina identities and are we allowed to be Latina? And you know, like when we lived in overseas in Africa, which was most of our lives, we were very young when we were when we lived in Central America. We were just white, you know, and that makes sense because that's where we lived. The context where we lived is we were white people, and it wasn't until we came back to North America as as young adults that we suddenly people were like, "Oh, where are you from?" And we were like, "What?" <laughs> and suddenly had all this identity to to work out. And um, then I have my niece who's thirteen, who was born and grew up in Toronto, and and she is taking Spanish classes on Saturdays, completely of her own decision because she wants to. It's the high school credit, but she's, you know, she's doing it on a Saturday morning and uh, she's taking like more and more advanced classes. And, and I'm just so stinking proud of her. And I think she's almost kind of like weirded out by how proud I am. <laughs> um, Let me be proud of you. Yeah, but I just, I feel like I feel like just that natural act on her own part, the freedom she felt to, to do that and, and, and to pursue it as I think an identity piece um, from how she's talked about it. I just, that was really healing for me to see sort of a generational ease that I didn't experience, but that she is. And, and that just made me so deeply happy. Um, so yeah, just talking about extended family, that's made me think of that. <laughs> Yeah, but I'm like sitting here thinking about also just like language and culture, but also now I'm thinking about like food, going back to your story. <laughs> and what, uh, super curious, I would love to hear everyone's comfort food. Right now, my comfort food is uh, cookies. My husband has spent lockdown baking. I have not, I have not baked, um, but he's baked. 
and to the point where he like obsessed he's a science teacher and he like obsessively perfected an oatmeal chocolate chip cookie we actually like started a business a couple weeks ago because he had like so obsessively perfected this cookie and made hundreds of them this year and that's like all I've been eating and then he made me a breakfast cookie version because I was like I really want to eat cookies for breakfast and so there's like a version of this oatmeal cookie now that has like carrots and hemp hearts and raisins and I can feel like so healthy eating my cookie for breakfast and um, yeah, that 2020 comfort food for me, I think has been largely defined by this cookie. <laughs> that sounds delicious. And congrats yeah. on opening your business. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, oh, this is so hard. Uh, so strangely for, I don't know why this is the way it is, but my comfort food is usually soup. That's a pretty given, you know, for a lot of people, but I've noticed myself leaning into these, these jars of, um, it's like a jar of sausages that look like little baby fingers um they're called vienna sausages yes i i grew up eating that i, I oh, don't we know the vienna okay. we know the vienna okay yeah. just making sure but you know when i was growing up and eating them they were like stuck in this like gel like consistency when you would like open it and then you would have to like shake out the the sausages and then the congealed fat would like ooze out with the sausage, but now they, it's like a liquid base. But anyways, I, I bought a Costco pack of them and whenever I'm feeling really down, I just fry them up and eat them. And they've been a huge source of comfort. I think because it's reminds me of home. It reminds me of, you know, when I was a child and my family would heat them up for me in the microwave and I would just eat them. And so I I've been, do you eat them with something or just by themselves? I'll put them in ramen. So I'll cook like some instant ramen and I'll pop them in there. But honestly, on some really bad days, I'll just eat them. <laughs> sometimes I, I even, sometimes I even have to be like, okay, Vina, you have to at least microwave them because I will eat them <laughs> cold because they're already cooked. But yeah, it's it's been a huge source of comfort for me. Odile, what about you? Fried? When you said fried, I just uh-huh. had instant like my mouth just watered. <laughs> like, you know, when you fry spam, yes. it smells so good. And I was like, oh, fried Vienna, canned Vienna sausages. I bet it smells the same. Spam is my second go-to. I also have a costco size pack of Spam. Amazing. Well, Vienna sausage, there's definitely that thing that as soon as you said that, I could taste it in my mouth. I know that <laughs> tastes like really well. Uh, but for me, if it's my comfort cooking has been bread. I became one of those pandemic bakers. Uh, I love, love, love making. My favorite thing I do is a roasted garlic, rosemary, and sea salt loaf. And okay. It's fantastic. I love making focaccia with all the different things on top. I haven't become a sourdough person. Like sourdough is okay to me, but it's not my favorite bread. So I prefer to make others, but yeah, there's just so many fun breads to make. And I always feel so successful because baking is like a science. And most of the time when I'm cooking, I'm just like, oh, I know it, you know, tastes good together and I could just throw it together. But this was a challenge, like follow, you know, recipes. And then once I got those down, now I'm like riffing off of those baking recipes because I know what um, kind of proportions I need to put together and so I feel like I'm at that next level of baking which is fun but if I'm eating uh what is comfort food I mean it depends on the meal like breakfast love hash brown that always feels like such a comfort oh, I love hash browns um, also a big soup person a nice big bowl of like uh 
yeah, I made broccoli cheddar the other day or corn chowder is a, a big one for me. There's just something about soup that's just like so soothing and just makes me feel like a warm hug inside. Uh, but I've been making a lot of things with like fish too, like tuna and sardines and lots of uh, sauces with like anchovies. And that's just like, especially anchovies that like salty umami goodness has been great for me. You and my mom would get along so well. I love it. Yes, we can cook together. Oh, this is um, all this food talk is making me super hungry. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's about dinner time over here for us. So um, I just want to then take this time to thank you so much, Ashley, for taking the time to talk to us. And thank you for sharing your story with us. I'm sure it was such a stressful time that you had to go through with all the chaos and all the uncertainty and all the family members under one roof. But I'm so grateful to have had the chance to get to hear your story. And I'm hoping that, you know, you had the opportunity to make some really amazing memories during that time. Thank you so much Thank for you. having me. It was such a fun conversation. Yeah. And we'll look forward to many more food conversations. Keep cooking. <laughs> Let us know how your business goes. Yes. <laughs> have a great evening. I'm feeling so nostalgic just thinking about like food and travel and missing travel, but especially so much of travel for me is the amazing meals that I get to have when I'm in new countries. And and I'm thinking about when I was in Thailand last year, it was like the very first trip, you know, March, well, February, 2020. And we went to B. Sam Cook Home 16, which is a very interesting name for a restaurant. But it was this new restaurant that was open up in Chiang Mai, which is in the mountainous region of Thailand. And I contacted the chef and I said, my family's going to be in town. I saw that you do like chef's tasting. I'd be really interested. And the chef was amazing. We communicated back and forth, talked about what do we like? What do we not like? What do we want to try? And when we got there, it had just like beautiful pond with these fish outside and you sit down and the chef himself comes out and serves you every meal. And we had, I think about like eight courses. And what I love about the experience is that my sister-in-law tried like salmon and she doesn't like salmon. It was this amazing salmon with like lemongrass in between and love seeing her try that and all the different dishes we had. And it was just an incredible experience. The chef is so talented. It felt like the entire experience was crafted for us and I never had that kind of experience before in my life. So I felt like I was living this luxury existence and being able to enjoy it with two people who I love dearly, my sister-in-law and my brother. And we think about that meal and talk about that meal all the time. And we have a picture with the chef who also gave us these cute little elephant keychains afterwards to remember him by. And I just dream of the day I can go back and try more of his dishes. How about you? Um... Yeah, the last place I traveled was to Vietnam, and I was living over there for three months, and I ate so many amazing things. And what's really interesting is I grew up, you know, I grew up in a Vietnamese community, but a lot of the food that I have here in the United States is kind of like diasporic Vietnamese food. 
And we kind of keep to like a lot more tradition. We're seeing a lot more young people like innovate and change things and um, kind of mix with different flavors. But yeah, when I was in Vietnam, there's so many different dishes and so many iterations of like old classics. I would say that my favorite meal I had was at this like, um, it's like a seafood restaurant, but they specialize in, I guess you would call it like sea snails. Like in Vietnamese, it's called ao. Um, they're just like various sea snails that you would find. And it was just amazing. Like it's just, you know, it's not food that you often find here because people, I guess, cringe at the thought of eating, you know, sea snails, but it was just so amazing. There were so many different flavors, um, really things I've just like never really tasted before. And it was prepared in like all these like super interesting ways, like it'd be in a stew or it'd be just sauteed, a lot of interesting different flavors. There's a lot of lemongrass, a lot of ginger um, tamarind. And yeah, I loved, I think what I loved so much about that experience was I was hanging out with my uncle and my uncle is like about my age, but like in terms of rank, um, familial rank, he's considered my uncle. And he brought along with him, um, some of his friends who are from the same hometown that my family is from in Vietnam. And we just sat around eating snails, drinking beer, laughing, making jokes and, it just, yeah, it was just like a really wonderful experience. And I, I really miss that sort of community and communal dining and eating together and just like laughing and being silly. Yeah. Talking, talking about yeah, it. I love so it. Nostalgic. I love <laughs> that both of our memories are steeped with people and so much of food is who we enjoy it with and the memories that are attached uh, to it. And every time I hear you talk about your time in Vietnam, I wish that I had made it over there to have some of those experiences with you. I'm, I'm hoping to come back in 2022, so maybe we can take tea and transitions on the road um, to spend some time over there. But, you know, in the meantime, everyone keep your spirits up. You can, even if you can't travel, you can still travel through flavors and through food. So we're wishing you many flavorful days and um, wonderful discoveries with a lot of uh, all the flavors out there that you have left to discover. Yes. Try something new this week. Yep. All right. Well, I am done with my tea now. It's getting cold. <laughs> I'm going to go and prepare some food since we've been talking about so much food. I am yes, so hungry. I'm so hungry too. Like time to eat all of the beautiful thoughts that I now have in my mind and just, you know, I'm having a wonderful meal with you from far away. Thank you for listening to TN Transitions, brewing good stories down to the very last drop.